Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Assistant Professor of Kinesiology and Sports Science at the University of Miami, Brian Mann. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So it's been almost five years to the day since I spoke to Brian Mann for episode number 24 of the Pacey Performance Podcast back in January 2015. So the podcast had been going probably a year up until that point and it's long overdue that I speak to Brian. So there's been a few changes with Brian moving from the University of Missouri to the University of Miami. But what I wanted to do in this episode was run through a couple of the points that we spoke about in January 2015 and see how things have moved on in terms of Brian's thoughts around certain things, around the research on certain things. So we discussed velocity-based training, obviously, because Brian is the go-to guy when it comes to VBT. We discussed APRE, so Autoregulatory Progressive Resistance Exercise, which again, Brian is the go-to guy. And then we discussed bar speed and strength and power training and important metrics when assessing bar speed and a few things that have progressed in them five years with the technology, how people are using it. So we get a good reflection on the five years since we discussed all these points back in 2015. So really delighted to get Brian on and I really appreciate it. I've been pestering him for a while. I know he's a very busy guy, speaking, writing, obviously doing his day job, um, but really do appreciate it. And I'm sure this will be an episode that you'll get tons and tons from. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can do, and you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Brian Mann. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So five years, nearly five years down the track, I am welcoming Brian Mann back onto the podcast. So welcome to the podcast again, Brian. Well, thanks for having me back. Uh, you know, five years, I guess uh, my uh, my spending time in the podcast jail is finally uh, finally over. I forgot the behavior, I assume. <laughs> Thank you for coming on again. Really do appreciate it. I know you're a busy guy and uh, yeah, I appreciate giving up your time on a on a Monday morning. So anyone that doesn't know who you are or wants a refresher, because I know a few things have changed since 2015, just want to give us a bit of an update on that, background, pre-2015, post-2015, education-wise, all that good stuff. Yeah. So, you know, my my background uh, was in, uh, my athletic background was in powerlifting. Uh, and then, uh, you know, some people would argue that that's not athletic, but, you know, whatever. 
Uh, and uh, as a coach, I spent some time at uh, Missouri State with uh, Rick Perry of Southwest Missouri whenever I was there. Uh, went on to Arizona State with Joe Kinn, University of Tulsa with Pat Ivey. Uh, back to Missouri State with Rick. Uh, they realized how much I did as an undergraduate assistant. I actually worked for four years as an undergraduate assistant and worked basically as a full-time coach. Uh, in addition to going to school and uh, working nights at uh, in the bars, bouncing and uh, in the restaurants on the weekend to, to make ends meet, and then uh, from there I went to the University of Missouri, where I got my second master's and my PhD uh, while I was coaching full time. Which I tell everybody that that's a that's a dumb idea. You know, if you're going to go PhD, go all in on that. Uh, I slept for maybe four hours of sleep. Uh, four hours a night uh, was my, my sleeping uh, for five years, and that's just stupid. Uh, people aren't made to made to do that. Uh, then I, while I was at Missouri, after I got my Ph.D., I was offered an academic position somewhere else. And then the uh, chair of the Department of Physical Therapy said, hey, you know, I got a job for you if you want it. And, uh, you know, it's hot down there, which is kind of funny with where I'm at now. Uh, it's like, give me a three days, I'll have you a job. And true to his word, he did. Uh, and then there was some issues at Missouri. There was, uh, you know, just bluntly, there was the uh, the, the racial protests, uh, and that caused the decline in, in, decline in enrollment. Uh, and then there was, um, uh, on top of that, the state senators and everybody were not happy with the way that it was handled by the university officials. So they cut funding. So there was a major deficit that the University of Missouri was dealing with. And they said, if you're the new president came in and said, hey, guys, if you're not tenure track and you're not considered vital to the uh, mission of the department, and here I am, a strength and conditioning coach in a department of physical therapy, uh, you're gone. And they ended up cutting 305 positions from the University of Missouri. And obviously mine was one of them. Uh, and the, about the day, the day of, or the day after, uh, I made a post on social media and I also had, uh, one of those NSCA bulletins come through and it had the job announcement for university of Miami closed that day. So I sent in my stuff and here I am now at the university of Miami for a year. Nice. So what's uh, assistant professor of kinesiology and sports sciences? Yeah. Good title. Good, solid title. Yeah, man. You know, it's uh, it's great. You know, I I actually, my department chair said, hey, I'll give you a year just to have a good a farewell tour and uh, hang out and get paid to not do a whole lot because uh, I had just had a baby. And he, he was like, this is, well, I didn't just have the baby. But we had the baby. My <laughs> wife had the baby. I know my belly looks like I'm pregnant right now, but uh, I assure you I'm not. Uh, junior only happens for Arnold Schwarzenegger in movies. Um <laughs> But, uh, you know, he was like, I'm going to give you a good, good, will, uh, good, good farewell tour. And uh, whenever I came down here, I knew that there was a guy named uh, Joe Signorelli. And he is an absolute legend in, uh, in the research side of things. And he does a lot with aging and Parkinson's. And he's done a lot with uh, journalist strength and conditioning research and other things. And uh, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to come down and learn it from him. And that has made me grow in remarkable ways in the past year, uh, where I've become stagnant in Missouri, quite frankly. But uh, working with him, uh, I've had the opportunity to learn from him and be challenged by him. And that's uh, it, it has been a tremendous experience that I never would have done if I would have stayed at Missouri because we were comfortable. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So with sports sciences in your title, I'm keen to know where sports sciences are from your point of view in the, in the U.S.? Specific from a, from a research and a, and a kind of academic world, but also how that translates into elite sport as well. Well, the the sports sciences here uh, is a little misleading. Whenever you you hear that name, uh, there uh, there is a strength conditioning master's program, but when they're referring to sports uh, sciences, they're referring more towards like sports management and whatnot. But as far as sports science goes here in the U.S., I think that they've done a lot to, to catch up. Uh, there's a lot of good people out there that are extremely intelligent that are, are looking at things. Now, I, I, we are, I would say on the strength science, we're probably world leaders. Uh, but on the monitoring, uh, we're catching up, but I, I don't think that we're completely there yet. Uh, we just 
there's not that many places that have a formal education that deals with uh, the IMA and GPS and HRV and uh, and the like. Uh, now I'm working to rectify that through our strength and conditioning master's program here. We've got a, a technology and strength and conditioning uh, class that uh, starts in January that uh, you know I've got together and I'm pretty excited about. Uh, you know, we'll look at some force plate stuff, uh, linear position transducer stuff, of course. Um, we'll be looking at some HRV, GPS, heart rate, and, and all that. You'll spend a couple of weeks, two to four weeks on each technology to try and give them a, a, a basics of it and then move on. But uh, until we get more of those formal educations coming, coming out, uh, it's going to be everybody who's self-taught. And I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. Uh, you know, my degree is not in exercise science like everybody thinks it is. It's in psychology. And I think that that has actually given me a, a, an ability to stand out and look at things from a 35,000 foot view with a different lens, you know, being more of a, a generalist and understanding that I don't know everything and I need to refer out to some people who know some things better than I so that we can actually start to make an impact. And, um, uh, so where do I think we are? I think that we're we're catching up with the rest of the world on the sports science side of things. We're spe- catching up specifically with Australia and the UK and Ireland, who do a, a fantastic job. Uh, do we still have a ways to go? Yeah, no, absolutely. We've still got a ways to go, but uh, I, I think we're getting there. Um, you know, I, I, we'll, we'll see within the next five years if all the people in the director of sports science or performance science come from, uh, you know, St. Mary's or Australia. Uh, but you know, we'll, we'll see. Uh, but I think there's some things that we do really well and there's some things that we need to, to catch up on. And I think also that there's some things that are out there that we put too much stock in, you know, with, with the whole GPS IMA, it only explains what the external load is on the individual. It doesn't say anything about the efficiency of their play. You know, you look at uh, last year NBA Finals, right? Uh, I think it was last year. Whenever there was an article that came out that talked about LeBron James having the the lowest uh, movements uh, on the uh, on the court during the finals, and was it laziness? Was it that he was tired? Well, there could be a little bit of that. But whenever you do such a great job of anticipating the play and looking at efficiency, that you know, if you know how to break things down and you could do something in two steps, why the heck are you going to take 25? Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I think that we need to make sure that we're applying some context to it and not, uh, as the uh, old adage says, you know, can't see the forest for the trees. You know, I think that we need to make sure that we're, uh, we're, we're paying attention to that and still look at it from that coaching lens rather than just a uh, data science lens. Mm-hmm. Cool. One thing I want to kind of base this talk around for the next half an hour 45 minutes ish is some of the questions that i fired to you back in uh, january 15 yeah and the first one was around auto regulatory training and it'd be great to get a bit of an update on your thoughts on how you're seeing this been applied in practice research side of things on um auto regulatory training then we'll move on to vbt and uh force plates and all that kind of stuff but first of all auto regulatory training what's what's changed in them five years well, APRE uh, specifically with the auto regulatory training. Well, so for auto regulation and training in, in general, I'd say that not a lot has changed from the fundamental standpoint of that you're regu- allowing the the organism to self regulate to where they're simply doing the loads. I think that one of the things that I, I might not have mentioned well enough back then or explained is that with auto regulation, typically you're looking at load selection uh, versus having this be some weird sort of its own periodization. So for me, you know, we still want to have things that we're doing things in blocks of time. Now, could it be exercise selection uh, for a periodization? Could it be load selection or, or in developing specific traits? It could be either one. But within the autoregulation, it's either picking the self-selecting the loads or the exercises based off of where the person is that day. And then we could go from there into uh, the APRE and uh, some of the things that have changed on it uh, is, I've, for one, I've learned that you've got to put everything down whenever you are trying to write something and not expect that it's, yeah, I thought you would have known that. 
you know, because uh, there's times whenever, uh, let's say somebody has got a, you know, 600 pound squat. So uh, three, let's, let's make it 660 so we can talk in kilos for everybody. You know, so if it's a three, 300 kilo squat, well, you go 150 kilos, 225 kilos, 300 kilos, dude, that, those are humongous jumps. So, uh, and even starting out 150 kilos is just stupid. So one of the things that I've gone on and I, I updated in that second ebook that's on uh, Elite FTS is how to do warm-ups. And I, I included it in my my own personal bench warm-up whenever I was doing APRE3, you know, and I just would make small jumps, you know, like 10, 20, 10 or 20 kilo jumps uh, in each one of my warm-ups. But I kept the volumes low to where it wouldn't induce fatigue. Uh and then uh, some other things that I've done with it uh, since then is that with the end season, I've looked at doing uh, just a single set of the APRE so that we can still progressively overload and allow them to progressively overload at their own rate, yet we don't uh, accumulate that much fatigue. Uh, so for some people, it would be fine. There's no way that they're going to see the field so you just maintain what they've been doing and you just allow that to rock and roll and keep, uh, keep accumulating, uh, because they're, they're going to, there's going to be minimal sports stress, but whenever you have a backup, somebody who's probably going to be starting the subsequent year, but this year they've got somebody who's really good, uh, that's in front of them as a senior. Uh, I've been going with single set for the progressive overload. So, because you never know when they're going to have to see the field. You never know when somebody's going to roll their ankle or pull a hamstring or, or God forbid, something worse happen. And then they're going to be on the field playing. And I don't want them to be broken down. Uh, I've also gone the other way and I've added additional sets on in the off offseason uh, uh, to try and progress people more quickly for a couple of weeks. Uh, and I've always done that, but I never really talked about it uh, because – I didn't want somebody trying to do that for like 12 or 16 weeks. Cause I think that would just burn them out. Uh, but you know, if I go with uh, four sets, well that allows for an increase in 60 pounds, about, you know, 25, 30 kilos increase each week. So within two weeks, if I've got somebody that I never have trained before, I don't know them from Adam, I can be at the appropriate load. Uh, and then I've even gone on to adding velocity thresholds for certain exercises, specifically the Olympic lifts, uh, that, you know, if they didn't hit the lift at uh, X velocity, it was the same as if they didn't rack it. And usually I'd go a little bit faster than the terminal velocity for that. Terminal velocity meaning 1RM velocity. And uh, the results that we got with that with the throwers was, uh, was fantastic. You know, I remember uh, our throws coach at Missouri saying, I don't know what you're doing with them, but they look freaking fast in the ring, which for somebody who decided to write his own program for 20 years and then hand it over to me, uh, that was uh, the biggest compliment that I got uh, in my career. And uh, I could actually just lay back and relax, not lay back and relax, but uh, feel a little bit more comfortable uh, with me taking over that program uh, rather than him. So on the uh, the APRE side, that's that's some changes. Uh, just to just to inter interject there, Brian. Yeah. So in terms of the velocity threshold, that that's just been you're replacing the percentage of a three RM or a six RM with. The velocity threshold instead or does that come somewhere different oh no no that's exactly it so I, I just yeah. like i want them moving fast i don't want them going in with the thought process of uh just moving load i want them to mm -hmm. worry about the speed of the movement because that's what seems to transfer more you know we can look at a lot of the research that's out there i mean simply looking at the paper from randall et al with nick gill on there with the all blacks who uh that's a a good day for you right now still i believe yes absolutely uh, <laughs> and uh but, you know, just the simply using the feedback to drive intent uh, is tremendous. So now if I can use that feedback and I can move faster uh, and because, uh, you know, in, in my opinion and meta-analysis to support these, that it's uh, Olympic lifts versus plyometrics, there's no statistically significant difference between. Uh, and even looking at the studies that they use, most of the time they weren't actually plyometric in nature as Verkoshansky defined it. So it wasn't shock method. It was just simply jump training that there's not a difference between the two. So it's all about moving fast and with the intent uh, to create those speed strength adaptations. If we look back through uh, the work from Kaneko or if we look 
through, through the work from uh, Jindaka or Roman whenever they're deriving that. Kaneko did the best job of that with the, uh, it's a 1983 paper. Just because it's old doesn't mean it's not right and not good. Looked at the adaptations uh, on uh, the muscle through how it produces force and power and finding that, you know, at 30, 40%, that there's a huge improvement in velocity and a smaller improvement in uh, force with a huge improvement in power. Uh, so then we see that, hey, this is absolutely a, a great way to do things. And with, whenever we apply that to the Olympic lifts, then we're truly doing them for their intended I shouldn't say it this way. The intended purpose of the weightlifting movements is to move the most weight because that's the sport of weightlifting. But whenever we apply that to sport, we need to go with that specific adaptations to impose demands that it should be fast. That's why we're doing it. And as I talked about in that in five years ago, that whenever we did cleans and we did it for weight, there was absolutely no improvement in vertical jump and sprint speed. Why then are we doing them? So whenever we apply that velocity threshold that you've got to go faster than this, that's whenever the proverbial magic happened. Uh, some people would say that it was improper technique, and it very well could be. But I'll tell you this. I know I'm not the smartest, you know, uh, uh, the smartest thing to ever fall off the turnip truck, but I also know I'm not the dumbest. So, you know, if – we were doing Olympic lifts and we were doing them too heavy with poor technique, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's other people out there who are doing it. So whenever we included that velocity threshold, all of a sudden it did become a relationship. It was third. Improvement in body composition was first. Improvement in squat strength was second. And we did, I will go out and say this, that whenever I did the, those statistics, we did have a really young team, right? It was mostly freshmen and sophomores. We had some juniors and only a few seniors uh, on that football team. Uh, so, um, you know, and then improvement in the Olympic lift happened. I, I bring that up to be important because, you know, I've found as well as other people that, uh, you know, Succamel, Nymphius and Stone put out that paper and I, I pretty much concur with it that whenever strength is a sole focus, uh, two and a quarter times body weight is the, uh, the end of where strength transfers. So, you know, looking at that, it's like, Hey, you know, we've got we've to move fast. And whenever athletes are older, they're typically stronger. And that's why I think that it was important to note that that improvement in squat strength happened with those younger athletes and they saw improvements in speed and power. I don't think – that did not happen whenever they were, you know, juniors, seniors, fifth-year seniors. Uh, the, the same transfer didn't occur. So just to put you on the spot here, Brian, apologies if I, if I do, please tell me. Um, if you were if you incorporate the Olympic lifts – into and using the APRE system with them velocity thresholds. Mm -hmm. Could you take us through the? Can you take us through how that would actually look in practice? Oh yeah. And so, so I might just say that uh, 1.6 meters per second peak velocity is the uh, minimum threshold that I want my athlete to be at. And uh, you know, they do their warm up set. They do their second. You know, they're they're 50 percent. They're 75 percent. And then whenever it's go time, every repetition that they do above 1.6 counts. Every repetition that they do below 1.6 doesn't count. So let's say I did six reps. Uh, four of them were above 1.6. Uh, the others were below. I go over to my adjustment chart and I'd see, okay, I can move up five pounds. Whereas, uh, you know, like a, a kilo or two kilos. Whereas uh, if I uh, saw that I did six, it would have said go up 10 pounds, right? So five kilos. Uh, so it, it's just utilizing that it's you know if you don't achieve the velocity it's the same as if you couldn't rack the bar yep is the, uh, did you say these adjustments have been made to the elite fts ebook where people can see that well the the uh, apre one is uh okay so it's yeah. been made in that the vbt book is through uh ultimate athlete concepts i'm Trying to find time. So I'm writing a chapter for Ian Jeffries. I'm uh, actually on VBT. I'm updating the powerlifting book. I'm working on three journal article manuscripts. So the VBT book that I'm updating is is on the back burner. Uh, I'm trying like hell to get it done, but uh, we'll, we'll see when it happens. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So have you seen any interesting ways or interesting – uh, environments where the APRE has been used and how that's kind of progressed over time. When when did when did you start the, the kind of interest in this? By the way, oh god, two thousand and shit, I was an undergrad. Uh, two thousand one, okay. two thousand two. Okay, uh, is so I, I read it in super training. I thought, well, fuck it, let's try it. Uh, I'm sorry, I drugged enough <laughs> on there. I, I need more. <laughs> 
We're all good. We're all good. <laughs> oh. So any any cool environments that you've seen this been implemented really, really well in? Yeah, you know, there's there's been a lot. You know, obviously in Division One sport, it, it's easy. Uh, you know, I was out at a uh, organization last week that's uh, with the Department of Defense, and, and they're doing a re- really good job with it and allowing the the operators special uh, the uh, the operators to be able to. Um, get stronger on their own speeds and, uh, and do things that way. Uh, I've seen people do them, uh, in rehab settings. Uh, Aaron Horshig, uh, the squat university guy put out a case case study on it. Uh, he got introduced to it because he was, did a, uh, internship with us at Missouri, uh, while he was a physical therapy student there. Uh, you know, there's just there's a lot of different places and a lot of people are doing it well. And uh, to be honest with you, it makes me really happy uh, to see some of the, the things that I've done that have been usable by everybody. Because the VBT, I mean, shoot, stuff's expensive. So not everybody can do it. But this, I mean, hell, it's free. It costs, you know, a, a piece of paper to print an adjustment chart on so your athletes have got it and then they can they can do it. Uh, you know, but I've seen everything from tactical to, you know, high school to – yeah, everybody doing doing things and doing it well, and they're you know changing up the uh, the rep schemes, and I, I think it's fantastic. You know, I, I I never want something to be like this is mine. These are the Ten Commandments written in stone. It's like, dude, everything I've done has been on a computer. I can change anything in a second, and whenever I print it off, it's on paper. Yeah, that costs what a penny to replace. It's cool, man. Go make it your own. You know it. Uh, if I've seen further than other men, it's only because I've stood upon the shoulder of giants, you know, to quote uh, Isaac Newton. You know, we, we've got to go and make things and make uh, forward advancements. We shouldn't just stand and stop in one area because this is the way that it is and this is the way that it's always been done because we bitch about the sport coaches who want to go ahead and do that exact same thing that, well, this is what I did when I played, so this is what we're doing. Well, why then do we stop and keep everything exactly the same and try and not to adapt it for our situation? Absolutely. And I'm just, I apologize for anyone listening who hasn't caught up with that um, 2015 episode and just go back like 15 minutes as well. And just to give a bit of a overview of what APRE actually is. Right. And apologies for not doing that 15 minutes ago. Yeah, yeah, my bad. I probably should have thought about it. No, 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 my, my fault. So we've got a, uh, the, the APRE as it came from uh, Delorme to Knight to Verhoshansky to myself. Basically now there's a 10-rep a protocol, which is for hypertrophy, a 6-rep protocol, which is for strength and hypertrophy, a, uh, a three-rep pro- protocol, which is for power and strength. And basically, you've got a couple of you know, prescribed warm-up sets. And then you have a, uh, a first work set, which determines the load of the second work set. And the second work set that determines the load for the following work, uh, week, the following session. We've got adjustment charts that are already uh, pre-written out that, so that it allows you to know, hey, okay, well, if I did – you know, if I'm on APRE three and I did seven reps on set three, well, I need to go up 15 pounds on set four uh, and, and whatnot. And I guess also some of the things that we've made adjustments with is that uh, with the female or the weaker athletes, uh, I usually give them some options and I usually cut out the first increase. Uh, so where, you know, like, uh, on the APRE six, five to seven is stay the same. Eight and nine is go up five pounds. Well, normally I would go eight and nine, stay the same as well. So it'd be five to nine repetitions. And then I would go up five pounds for the next day for the, what would be the 10 pound increase. And I would only go up five or 10. I would give them the option for that 11 to 13 repetition. Uh, because what I found was one, whenever they're weak, I mean, if you go up 15 pounds, that could be like a 20 or 30% increase in, in, uh, in load. And also most of the time, if they're weak, they don't have a resistance training background and they may be intimidated by loads. So they actually do better with the accumulation of volume and they're going to go harder at that and see greater adaptations in speed and power as a result of the just increase in volume than they would through the increase in load, which might be too high. And also psychologically, there could be some fear there. And uh, if you're scared of doing something, you're not going to go all out. But they're going to be like, okay, well, this is light enough. It's only five pounds. I can go up this. And then over time, we end up seeing the same, if not greater increases in load and the same, if not greater increases in speed and power uh, because they're not afraid to do it. 
So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Brian, hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss the theme of reflection on the last five years in the world of VBT in APRE and some of the advancements in the technology to assess them things. So a really interesting part two coming up, which I'm sure you'll get a lot from, and it's been really interesting for me just seeing how things have progressed in terms of Brian's career, in terms of the technology that he's been using and researching. And um, we also discussed one thing that I, I forgot to mention was the psychological stress that comes, especially in collegiate sport and how that affects um, some of the physical outputs in, uh, in that environment. So re- another really interesting chat coming up in part two. But just before we do get into part two, I wanna say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So Fatigue Science have exclusive access of the SAFT model, which is an algorithm developed by the US Army. And if you listen to my episode with Ian Dunican, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So the SAFT model analyzes a number of different factors in your sleep history to predict your fatigue for the day ahead. So the alertness score indicates fatigue predicted effects on your reaction time, your lapse index, your mental output, all all things that are obviously essential for the performance that you're gonna undertake that day. So as you can tell, it is much more than a sleep tracking device. However, it is a sleep tracking device, but not only does it track sleep, um, it considers the time you went to sleep, how well you slept, how much sleep debt you have, and even your local sunrise and sunset times. So a really impressive bit of kit is the ready band from Fatigue Science. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, head over to their website, uh, fatiguescience.com, but also follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. Also sponsoring the Pacey Performance Podcast today is Omega Wave. So Omega Wave is an, the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train for both the brain and cardiac analysis. So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy levels and autonomic nervous system balance, It allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize training and then optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position and this data can be used by the medical practitioner to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. So this measurement only takes four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to their windows of trainability concept. So Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sport, military and law enforcement agencies and are now the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So if you want to learn more about Omega Wave, visit their website, which is omegawave.com and on their social media channels. Um, so one thing that I want to discuss, and you have become synonymous for this, and we've discussed it, well, you've discussed it a little bit already, and that's velocity-based training. So I'm guessing this is, an, well, this is definitely an area that has moved on in the last five years with research and practice could you give it could you frame it a little bit better than i've just done and what you've seen um develop over the last five years in terms of velocity-based training yeah you know there's some areas that have developed and some areas that kind of reverted and some areas that uh there's some misinformation out there and i think it's it's my fault uh so vbt really deals with the uh, relationship to the percentage of 1RM and a corresponding velocity. Now, whenever I developed the zones, I developed them based off of everything that I had seen with Division One athletes. And that ter- turns out, guess what? Whenever you're dealing with uh, only like uh, half a percent of your athletic population from high school goes on to play Division One sport, you're actually dealing with a very homogenous group. So for us, everybody fell within you know, 80% of our guys. And I actually just did some force velocity power profiling a couple of weeks ago with our baseball team. And even 80% of them fell within the, uh, the traditional zones of what I would expect, you know, at 80%, you're going to be at uh, 0.5 meters per second, you know, at 60%, you're going to be at 0.5 meters per second. And every 5% goes up 0.06 meters per second. Then we had uh, some people that were just a little bit off of that, and then we had a couple of studs, uh, and we saw that off of the force velocity power profiling. Now, whenever we deal with the high school athletes or some other groups that are extremely uh, heterogeneous or even more homogenous, so the more heterogeneous would be the high school athletes because uh, it's volunteer participation. You know, it's not having to be recruited and being the best of the best of the best. 
the zones don't always work. Uh, and there's two reasons why. One, obviously, is the heterogeneous nature of it that some people, you know, with the fiber typings and the uh, just the, the way that the nervous system operates, it's just not optimal for sport. Uh, and then on the other side of things is that, uh, especially whenever it gets down to the high school level, it's that they're weak. And uh, I found that VBT didn't work with my weak female athletes, and they just couldn't move appreciable load to be able to, to utilize it, especially on the upper body movement. So it cert- turned out that it was uh, worthless for that. Uh, and, you know, going back to it, I've been, you know, seen some, you know, people have sent me some stuff that's like, hey, here's what the velocities look like for my high school kids. And it, it, it was all over the place. And that you couldn't do zones based off of that because it's too heterogeneous. Likewise, uh, people who are power lifters and Olympic lifters, well, whenever they weightlifting is their sport or strength training is their sport and they gain neuromuscular efficiency. So whereas I have yet to see a person be able to do a squat in college under 0.2 meters per second, most of the time we'll see between 0.28 and 0.35. For powerlifters, it's nothing to do a squat at 0.08 meters per second because they've gained that efficiency over time. And also that you know, we even see with the athletes that from year to year to year to year, we see a typical decrease in velocity. So they're gaining some neuromuscular efficiency through the heavy strength training, where we normally start out about uh, 0.36 their first year as a freshman, uh, hitting a 1RM, then it goes to 0.32, then it goes to about 0.3, and then about 0.2 six to 0.28 for their fourth year of training. Uh, then, uh, so we see those average decreases that happen o- over time with the, the, uh, neuromuscular efficiency that they increase. And then, um, damn, I forgot where I was going with that, but, uh, you know, oh, well, yeah. Cause so then they're kind of resembling the power lifters, but we have to realize that all of the training for power lifters and weightlifters go to their movements versus the sport. So that's why I think we don't see that great decrease. Uh, but there is an annual decrease in it. Uh, and, and that's why, again, you know, I still stick with the zones with our Division One athletes because they work. It works just fine and adjusts for the freaks. Uh, some areas that I've changed in the zones, right? What are the zones? In case somebody didn't listen five years ago, we'll make them go listen to that podcast again. Uh, <laughs> 0.5 meters per second and below is absolute strength, which relates to 80% of 1RM. 0.5 to 0.75, so you're looking at that 60 to 80% of 1RM. Uh, that's that accelerative strength. And that's also a zone for hypertrophy, which I really, you know, I don't use that zone very much, uh, to be completely honest with you. I, I live in the strength speed and speed strength, which are the two sides to peak power. Uh, so I'm trying to increase peak power through either from load. So about, you know, 60 ish percent of one RM. And if you look at the Kaneko study that shows the equal improvements in force and equal improvements in velocity with a pretty good improvement in power and power not only goes up, it also shifts over to the left. So where force velocity, everybody wants to go up and to the right with power. You actually want to go up and to the left. Think about that uh, Kramer and Hockenden graph with the uh, the the that shows us that the explosive ballistic was the best at 200 milliseconds, right? We want that to happen. We want power to go up and to the left so that we're doing force uh, more force and we're doing it faster, so that we're producing peak power at a, a sooner time. Uh, and then from uh, that strength speed, that 0.75 to 1.0, speed strength 1.0 to 1.25, 1.3, somewhere around in there. Uh, that's, you know, the bottom range of that's about between 30 and 35, maybe 40%, depending on the person. Uh, and that's also shown in with the Kaneko uh, that it's high improvements in velocity, moderate improvements in force, great improvement in power. Uh, so there, then there's... So there's that. And then beyond that was uh, starting strength. And, you know, it's, calling it starting strength might be a misnomer. I, you know, it almost should be starting speed. But since people had the, in the Soviet Union had already started saying starting strength to refer to the same thing, I went with it. But maybe I'll change that in the next book. I, I don't know, just because everybody gets confused on that. And that's just the ability to rapidly overcome your own inertia from a, from a dead start. Then. Uh, so some of the things that I, I've looked at and have changed is that we have to realize that as a coach, we all have our cognitive biases. Oh, and Olympic lifts, they've got their own velocities and their threshold velocities. And right now, 
I don't think I've had enough caffeine to be able to remember what they are. <laughs> uh, but uh, there, I put them out in a uh, simply faster article uh, a while back, and uh, you know, so that's the one or m velocities in there. I don't think I did the best job of explaining that. And then you want to train power at around eighty percent, so you back off about 0.15.2 off of that uh, that threshold, and that's the velocity you want to be at for power. Um, so. Some changes that I, you know, things that I've done is that uh, squat, bench press, deadlift. That was the the core of my program. And squats and deadlifts had the exact same velocities. And bench press, they didn't. Its terminal velocity was 0.15 meters per second versus, you know, 0.35 meters per second. But my thought was, hey, you don't play the sport on your hands. So we're just going to give the coaches less to have to worry about. They're still going to see great adaptations in upper body power. So who cares? And uh, I've been raked over the coals on that a little bit. But uh, in my opinion, if I make something that's perfect, but no coach can implement it because they can't keep everything straight, then what have I done? I, I've done a disservice, you know. So I just I rolled with that. Uh, so looking at that cognitive bias of powerlifting in the zones, I can see it. Because some people, you know, their main lift is an overhead press. And that's not going to follow the same velocity. Or a, uh, a bench row, which has no ground basis. I mean, some people say that the bench press, well, you're, you're laying on a bench. Yeah, but you know what? I'm driving my feet into the floor like hell. Uh, and if you don't think that your feet do anything on a bench press, do a bench with your feet in the air and see what happens to your, uh, to your numbers. Um, but I noticed, you know, I've got that cognitive bias. You know, that bench row, it's a 0.5 meters per second is the terminal velocity for one RM. So, you know, there, there, there has been a disservice by me on, for some people on those, uh, those exercises that they want to do that aren't what I did. And, uh, you know, mea culpa, I, I guess, as far as that goes. Uh, but one of the things that I've started doing is to use VBT as a sort of an assessment, if you will, uh, through the use of force velocity and, profiling. Uh, and, you know, and really what I'm looking at there is the power more than I'm looking at the force and velocity components uh, in, in particular, uh, you know, with, with the gym aware for every repetition. Uh, and that's the one that I use. Uh, I'm on the sport advisory board, but I love gym aware because of the X axis correction and the fact that it'll save everything for you on the cloud. So if I just, uh, I add on some, so in the past, you know, 15 months, I'm sitting there and I'm having a talk with Joe Signorelli. And actually, it was, uh, we co-teach a class, uh, Neuromuscular Basis for Training. And he was going on about the uh, force velocity and power profiling that he had done with his, with his uh, Parkinson's and aging population. And I'm looking at it and I, I just have the realization. I'm like, I'm a moron. I don't know why I never thought of this before. I've been doing this for freaking, uh, I've been doing velocity since 2002. And I'd never thought of this. I'm, a, I'm an idiot. 17 years, I never thought of it. So if I just add some ballistics, some unloaded movements before I start my warm-ups, so I can throw a PVC pipe or a broomstick on my back and I do some squat jumps as long as I go to full depth, or if I make a uh, PVC pipe bar that's basically just a square because I throw the uh, tether onto the front of the bar on a, uh, on a trap bar deadlift, um, and I do jumps with that from the same height as what the plates would be at. I can get so much more information. I can track how velocity is produced at each rep, how force is produced at each rep, how power is produced at each rep, and look at the curves and see how power changes over time with an athlete's career. That's allowing me to now look at uh, load prescriptions. It's like, okay, does this athlete, what does this guy need? Uh and also, I've been able to do that through the use of force plates. So, you know, listening to Matt Jordan's episode, probably nearly the same time ago that uh, that I was on. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I found out he was talking about the Pasco plates, and I went and got those. And you know, dynamic strength index there with the uh, mid thigh pull, a la Jeremy Shepard, and the uh, the counter movement jump, or I can do it through the linear position transducer and look how power changes on that specific movement. And whenever I line the two up, and I see, hey. Power is increasing on this, on this squat, barbell back squat or trap bar deadlift, and power is not going up on the counter movement jump. Well, there's a lack of transfer there. So if the counter movement jump is my KPI, what am I doing? So I need to change up the movement then. Uh, 
But if I see from that force velocity power profile that by getting that power to shift to the left, by training at faster and faster velocities, all of a sudden that the power is increasing on the counter movement jump, I know that I should stick with it and keep keep milking it out until I need to change exercises. And that might just be changing the, to the depths. You know, we saw that article from Ray et al. a few years ago that Joe Ken was on and uh, Darren Krein, both who were NFL strength coaches. Uh, Joe Ken with the Panthers, and I believe Darren Krein went to the Cleveland Browns. I could have that mixed up. Again, not enough caffeine. But, uh, you know, those are two NFL strength coaches, and Matt Ray with Indian, uh, Indiana is on there. Uh, or he's the lead author. And uh, so we know that these guys know sport. Well, they looked at the quarter squat, the half squat, and the full squat. So all three are squatting. All three saw power and speed improve. But the quarter squat saw it move better. So do I need to change up to quarter and half squats? versus the full squat, you know, and things like that. So it helps me with the force velocity and power profiling and looking how power changes uh, with the, the less trained athletes. It's helping me with load selection. And with the more trained athletes, it's helping to, me to know when do I need to change exercises. So, you know, and that's been probably the biggest change in, in the way that I do VBT is to be able to use it as an uh, assessment beyond the, you know, 1RM prediction uh, that I've been using for a year. I don't remember if I was doing it five years ago or not uh, with the, the last one where you would just simply project out based off of velocities that they did that day to the 1RM. Uh, I've also done a lot with velocity loss and being able to mitigate fatigue and, uh, you know, looking at 10 and 20% loss. I don't go anywhere over 20%. I'm usually 10% and that's on the, uh, the liberal end. Uh, cause I usually just give set zones. It's like not zones, uh, set cutoff. So, you know, like 0.05 or 0.1 meters per second. I never, I never let things drop below that. But we see that the uh, you know the the speed and power adaptations are so much better whenever we've got the vo- lower velocity loss than the higher velocity loss. And then if you look at the uh, cross sectional area and the uh, the percentage of fiber type, et cetera, that with the lower velocity loss, you see less increase of uh, type one fiber in, uh, improvements, uh, hypertrophy and percentage of cross-sectional area and greater increases in the type two. Now there's still increases, but uh, whenever you look at the percentage of cross-sectional area, that type one might actually go down a little bit in favor type two in a, a greater, uh, greater respect. And uh, you know, those two X's changing to two A's, two B's changing to two A's, uh, and then the one C and two C changing to two A, you know, you're seeing that, that sort of adaptation uh, to occur. Uh, which to me is is huge for the sports that it needs to be huge for. Uh, for some sports and some positions within the sports, you need indiscriminate rather than selective hypertrophy. So you just have to know what you're doing, and there's not a, a one-size-fits-all for any of it. Just on that velocity loss, Brian, how would you cycle that throughout the year, and would you – you would you discriminate between upper body and lower body depending on velocity loss and time of the year? So during the time of the year, how do I do it? Well, so if I'm looking at uh, one of the things that I, I've done is with the strength in the off season that I look at velocity loss there. Uh, and I usually don't do velocity for whenever I'm worrying about strength for most individuals, but I will for somebody who's more highly trained that I'm worried about overtraining them, overshooting them and and not getting them hurt. So if somebody is super trained, uh, they're super strong already, increases in strength isn't going to help them a tremendous amount, but I feel like I need to put that back through the cycle to set up a greater increase in power. I'll look at a velocity loss there at the, uh, in the early off season uh, for their, their strength training. But that's really the only time that I'm going to be looking at it for them because everybody else still needs to learn how to strain. And then I'll, I'll throw it in in the uh, preseason periods, uh, that second transition, uh, depending on the terminology that you're using. In uh, in-season periods, really during the in-season, uh, on the power aspect of things, if I am looking at trying to develop power in people uh, through strength, speed, and speed strength, that uh, uh, load velocity, velocity load, if you're using uh, some of the Scandinavian uh, terminology. Um, and uh, so I'll still have it. I'll have a load that might be 60% or 50% or 40%, depending on which end that I'm trying to go more towards. And I will, uh, I'll, I'll just have that load and I'll be like, okay, as soon as you drop off 0.05 meters per second, you're done. 
Cool. And and in in terms of there seems to be an increase in using VBT for non kind of primary exercises. Is this something that you've you would encourage, or would you still stick to the the, the core lifts that you need to actually or should be tracking VBT with? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, and and it, it depends, right? So um, I think that if it's a, a key exercise for you, then you should absolutely do it. And I think you should absolutely force elasticity power profile it. Uh, but if it's something like overhead squat, well, that's a stability exercise. Why in the heck are you trying to take a stability exercise and turn it into a power exercise? Or a bicep curl, for God's sake. Like, well, unless you're a competitive drinker worrying about how fast you can take shots, what's the point of that? Uh, you know, and, and, you know, I've been wrong before on things and, and thinking that, you know, that there wasn't a point to, to something. You know, I'm wrong every day. You can just ask my wife. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I don't see the point. And, and just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean that you should. Uh, you know, and think about it. And, and if you if it fits your why. And if it's your reasoning, absolutely, go ahead and do it. But if you're doing it just because you can and you think it's cute and sexy, a lot of results, most of the time, whenever I try to get cute and sexy with a program, that's whenever I saw the worst results. Yeah, it's whenever I went with the basics and I got them strong with a weak sport and I worked on jumping and I worked on sprinting. That's whenever I saw the best improvements. But whenever I worked worried about all these, you know, little sexy exercises and throwing in sliders and trying to do cute things just to keep everybody interested in the program, that's whenever we saw the shit results. And, uh, you know, the basics are the basics for a reason because they work. So if you don't have the basics already in and they're not already strong and you're they're you know, like, shoot, looking at the DSI, the dynamic strength index, man, I, there there's a and I, I've talked with Jeremy about this. And that's how I know Jeremy Shepard, the, the person who's often uh, credited with creating it. That if they're weak, if they're guys, they're not pulling five times their body weight. So think, uh, was that about 49 newtons per kilo? Then they're going to see improvements in power in their ballistic strength just by getting stronger. So there's always context that has to be played to everything. And I think that that's one area that, that a lot of people miss things on. It's like, oh, well, I'm just going to start out and I'm going to do this. Well, I mean, read Bonder, Chuck, dude. Or I don't remember if it was reading him or if it was talking with him. As I've had the uh, – through being an editor uh, for his books, I've had the opportunity to talk with him numerous times. We had him out to uh, Coach's Conference in San Antonio last time it was down there. And he said – Again, it's either in his book or it was in a conversation uh, that where he said, uh, if you throw in the wrong training method, uh, if you throw in a training method at the wrong time, you lose it twice. You lose it the first time because you weren't ready to make that adaptation because you didn't have the the necessary uh, groundwork laid. And you lose it the second time because whenever you do have that groundwork laid, well, you already made that adaptation. So you aren't going to see a, a big jump in performance from either time. So I think people might be shooting themselves in the foot by trying to do these sexy things uh, rather than just get get to it. You, you got to get strong first. I mean, Bampa was right in the fact that all strengths relate back to absolute strength. And I always go with the uh, the caveat that it's for a while, because at one point in time, improvements in strength are going to cease to transfer. Uh, some people are, you know, Matt Ray put out on Twitter or LinkedIn or something a while back that he found it was about 1.7 or 1.5 is whenever that power improvements, looking at the transfer index from Zatsiorski, which was, uh, for those who don't remember that, it's in science and practice of strength training. I can only speak for the green and white copy. I can't speak for the newest edition with, uh, with Dr. Kramer because I don't have it. Uh, and it's not because it's not good. It's just because I'm cheap. Um, <laughs> and you, you look at the result gain of each one and the result gain is the mean change divided by the standard deviation of the, uh, untrained exercise divided by the result gain, which is the mean divided by the standard deviation of the trained exercise. And that's the transfer index. Uh, you have to divide by the standard deviations to get rid of the units. 
Because if I've got seconds in one and one and kilos in another, it just doesn't make sense. Uh, so you got to get rid of the units to, to look at the, uh, the transfer. And also then I, if you don't divide mean by standard deviation, it, it's just going to be a weird number. Uh, so that allows everything to get back to usable metrics. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's another area that I've uh, been looking at lately. Um, I'm rambling now. I apologize. It's fine, man. No, 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 you're not at all. It's, it's great. Um, so in terms of technology, I know you, you've said just now that you prefer gym aware. What, what other advancements in this area have we seen over the last five years? And where do you think it's going in the future? Well, you know, um, yeah, obviously force plates have become more affordable with uh, single access yep. plates. Uh, and then there's some, uh, if you get creative, you can do some stuff with load cells. I'm actually, I've got some stuff from Spark Fun sitting on my desk. I had a Pasco plate break. So I decided uh, the, the uh, if you move the Pasco plates around too much, uh, or if you have them on a, a bumpy ride, I had them in a cart that wasn't the greatest and taking them across campus and the sidewalks and bumping and everything. The, uh, the uh, amplifier card and data acquisition card that goes to uh, the interface, it would break. So I pulled all the load cells out of it, and I'm using a SparkFun Arduino card and some uh, other stuff that I'm trying to learn how to – I don't know how to solder and do all this other crap that electrical engineers know how to do, but uh, I'm trying. I'm a redneck, baby. If you give me some bailing wire, WD-40, and duct tape, I'm going to fix it. Um, <laughs> you're a carpenter as well, are you, Brian? Just to interrupt you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I haven't been able to do it since I moved to Miami because it's uh, – I had to sell all my stuff. You know, it's so expensive here. We we uh, moved to a place that – from a house on a three-quarter acre lot that was uh, 2,400 square feet to something that is 1,200 square feet, no lot – you know, it's a condo for three times the price and no garage. So I had to get rid of all of my uh, carpentry equipment that I'm hoping to be able to uh, to start doing again at some point because I love it. But, uh, you know, this is going to have to take the place of it. I'm going to have to start electrical engineering, I guess. But, uh, yeah, so then I'm doing some stuff where I, I've had some thoughts about with uh, the crew team here, uh, the rowing team, you know, with uh, trying to, to turn uh, – Get a lot more information out of the ergs uh, with uh, in, in, you know with load cells there because they're they're pretty cheap. Uh, you can get a load cell on SparkFun for like sixty bucks. Uh, then you have to wire it and amplifier chip it and data acquisition card it and everything. It gets to be a pain in the ass. I'm not going to lie, but uh, you know you can. There's always solutions out there. But uh, whenever you get down to it, I think that with the decrease in cost of equipment, that we are going to see increases in in their use you know the force plates i think are going to be the first area and they already are where there's lots of increases in their their utilization um you know i've been like i said i've been using pascos uh they're they're cheap but uh they're very accurate until they're not uh you know that uh, once the data acquisition card goes or the load cell goes well they're not really repairable so much uh now i've become a bit of a uh, Pasco mechanic myself and I know how to swap out the load cells and do some things here and there. But uh, if the data acquisition card goes on it, well, you, you can't do anything for it because it's printed. It's not like the old school where they would wire stuff in and solder it. It's 3D printed. Uh, so, but I think the force plates with the counter movement jumps, different isometrics, et cetera, are, are huge. Uh, I think that with the video analysis, with the the greater increases in the 2D and the uses of the inertial motion units, that that's allowing people to get a better grasp on uh, on movement. Uh, that that's that has improved. I mean, shoot, you could either pay you know two hundred fifty dollars for a Connect uh, Xbox Connect. Well, now they're out of business, so whatever the next camera is that comes along, uh, or a two hundred fifty thousand dollar Vicon system. You know, and if you're getting the same information, you might as well just use the cheaper unit. Uh, you know, I think that that's, that's huge. So I think that those and where it should go, and I don't know if it will, is looking at how the training influences those adaptations, right? So are we seeing the improvements in power? Are, uh, doing the mid-five-pole, uh, are you seeing improvements in the strength? Uh, looking at single-joint isometrics, are we seeing improvements in where we think we're seeing improvements? And using the video to overlay for some of the key movements, like a drop vertical jump, man. 
you know, that's a huge ACL screen. If you look at the work from Myers, Hewitt, Nageli, Webster, et cetera, I mean, that's just tremendous. So, you know, if we're not looking at that, and I, another area that I think that as strength and conditioning professionals, we're overlooking is the landing forces. And for some people like me using PASCOs, you're going to have to overlook it because they're not going to land all the way on the plate. So I, I put foam mats around it or a wood platform around it so nobody's going to roll an ankle. But uh, if you've got the bigger plates, man, look at the landing forces too, and the way that they're uh, that they're able to uh, withstand, absorb the force. You know, what are what? How is it in relation to the peak power? Uh, I, I think that that's huge. Uh, I think that basically, if we, uh, you know, also doing the force velocity power profiling, I think that that's huge. Uh, you know, there there's so many areas that I think that we're not looking at right now that we could. Uh, some of the areas I think that maybe we're spending too much time on, uh, it might be the external load metrics. I think that the internal load is definitely something that's going to, to matter hugely. Uh, the external load, I think that it's important, but I don't think that we can put as, quite as much stock into it. And, and even in the things that we do put a lot of stock into, we've got to realize that there's context that's needed. I know that there's this huge thing with the acute chronic workload and people are like, oh, it's crap, it's crap, it's crap. No, dude, I think that it's just simply one aspect that we need to look at and realize that there's not one thing that is the overarching predictor of injury. I mean, shoot, whenever we had that effects of academic stress on illness and injury in Division One football paper come out, it wasn't the only thing that was predictive of injury. But it did show an increase in the odds. And I think if that's an area that we look at, the odds ratio went uh, up to 3.12 times uh, likely to, to get hurt during a game for somebody who was a starter, somebody who's seeing significant playing time uh, versus any regular week during an academically stressful period. And I think it was 2.54 during training camp over the regular week. So the people who played are actually more likely to get hurt from a pencil than a 300 pound dude smashing down <laughs> on, them, uh, which I thought was incredible. But I think that we need to start looking at this global stress, not just this one aspect that I think that we need to start looking at mental health more and the ability of somebody to deal with stress. Now, some of these things like these smartphones, man, you know, uh, we're working on an article for frontier that, you know, it showed that just simply by having a smartphone that people's stress level increase because they're so connected. And then, you know, I think that there's a lot of that. I feel bad about myself because I don't have everything that everybody else has whenever in reality, you know, maybe they're uh, driving in a Benz and living in a shoebox as I, you know, see down here in Miami a lot. Uh, you know, we've, we've got to make sure that we're looking at stress globally and not just looking at it at uh, this one, oh, this is the key metric. This is the silver bullet, dude. There ain't no one silver bullet for anything. You know, if there was, somebody would already be a millionaire. There are no secrets. Nobody is, just, you know, if they were, somebody would have won every championship since the beginning, you know, from now until the end. Uh, and I guess the Patriots are pretty close to that, but, uh, you know, and the New Zealand All Blacks are pretty close. But, you know, shoot, they even say, you know, they, they put out a book about it. It's like, hey, cool, no dickheads allowed, sweep the sheds, uh, work hard. Uh, Gill's programs, he'll throw them out there, man. They're, they're basic. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it, it, there's no, no secrets. There's no one simple factor that does anything. So with the technology, I think that where we're really going to see the changes come is whenever a skilled practitioner who's got experience in other areas starts utilizing the technology and applies context to it, that we're going to see the magic happen. Awesome. Well, I've gone over, we've gone way over, and that's absolutely fine. Yeah, it's been great problem. to chat. And, no, 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 don't, don't apologize. Not at all. Um, I'm glad you've been able to, to stick around and, um, and, and, spend your Monday mornings chatting to me. Um, anyone that wants to know more about your work, Brian, where, where's the best place to um, for them to get in touch with you? Well, they can get in touch with me on uh, you know, the social media. Uh, that that never has changed. You know, J. Brian Mann on Twitter. And uh, uh, what's the one with the videos and pictures? Uh, Instagram? Instagram, thank you. Uh, so they, they can hit me up on there. Uh, they can send me an email to bman, B-M-A-N-N, at miami.edu. Uh, while I'm busy and involved, I'm not very popular. I might get a couple hundred emails a day, but I might only get uh, one tweet. So, you know, that's only <laughs> uh, yeah, And one tweet's on a good day, too, I, I, I must add. Um, but, uh, you know, that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. Uh, I try and throw whatever is open source uh, up on my research gate. Uh, I don't want to be one of those people that get, you know, 
I lived through the Napster era and, you know, people getting sued and having their lives ruined through throwing up music songs and everything, you know, you know Metallica <laughs> songs. So, you know, I haven't been throwing up the stuff that's not open source, uh, but I've got, you know, my research gate's got anything that's open source on it uh, and a few things that aren't. Uh, and uh, maybe I'll get my hand slapped over that one. Hopefully it won't be anything bad. Hopefully I'm not going to lose my uh, my livelihood for it. Uh, those are going to be the easiest ways to get a hold of me. My phone number here in my office is area code 305-284-5844. Uh, I'm usually, you know, like I said, you'd have to catch me in the office because I don't know how to check my messages. But, uh, <laughs> dude, this phone system here, I tell you, is just fucking weird. I <laughs> Yeah, so you got like a have to have like a fourteen number pen. I can't remember that. Um, so yeah, so they could call me on my uh, my office phone, uh, but I, I'm going to be collecting data a lot on campus and teaching too. I've got a heavy teaching load here. I teach twelve credit hours a semester, uh, which kind of sucks whenever you're trying to do research too. But you know, wh- whatever. But yeah, I'm, I try and be pretty easily accessible. If you email me and I don't get back to you, I'm not disrespecting you. I'm not ignoring you. There's Two things that happened. Either my kid was playing with my phone and deleted it, or I just missed it. Uh, and also, for some people, whenever you text me, if I don't know who you are, she's deleted half. She's deleted my entire contact thing once. So, <laughs> um, yeah, sorry. If uh, you know, if you've got kids, you understand. But yeah, that's it. I try and be accessible, uh, and I try and get back to everybody if I can. And if I don't, man, I'm sorry. Just try me again. You're not annoying me. Uh, I just didn't see it. Awesome. Thank you very much, Brian. Really appreciate it. And thank My you for pleasure. giving up your Monday morning to um, sure. to, to revisit what we chatted about um, almost five years ago. So thank you very much. It was my absolute pleasure, Rob. Thanks, Brian. Speak to you soon. Yes, sir. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Brian for coming on five years down the track and revisiting some of the things that we discussed back in January 2015. I know he's a busy guy, so I really appreciate him giving up his time and, uh, and coming on for a chat. Also, big thanks to all the sponsors from today's episode. The podcast, trust me, the podcast could not run in its current form without the support of these guys. So really appreciate all their support, as well as your support for tuning in and um, making the podcast what it is, because if no one tuned in, it won't happen. So really excited to bring some cool guests coming up again over the next couple of weeks. So make sure you tune in and I will speak to you next week. 